For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, June 5th. On today's show, we'll talk about how Microsoft is buying GitHub, how Google is pulling out of its Pentagon contracts, and all the news from Apple's developer conference on Monday, including the company's effort to engineer a less addictive iPhone. Then we'll be joined by journalist, author, and activist Naomi Klein, who just released a new book today, The Battle for Paradise, about how corporations and politicians are trying to potentially cash in on the chance to rebuild Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands following the historic and deadly Hurricane Maria that swept through the islands last fall. Some of the folks trying to cash in are cryptocurrency enthusiasts who are eager to take advantage of the lack of regulation while locals continue to try to piece their lives back together after the storm. And we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw online this week. Let's just jump right to it. I'm actually in New York today, not in California. Will, you're still in California, right? I'm in Santa Barbara as usual. And April, I think you wanted to talk this week about the news with Microsoft acquiring GitHub, right? I want to breeze through it. I mean, you know, we did learn that Microsoft is acquiring GitHub or that they would like to for over $7 billion. That was actually broken on a Sunday night by Bloomberg, and then it was confirmed Monday morning by Microsoft and GitHub. And it's an interesting combination because, you know, GitHub is, for those who don't know, a very large, in fact, the largest place in the world for coders to come and collaborate, to submit different versions of software they're working on, to communicate, to store their work, and to track their work. And a lot of that work is open source. In fact, if you're doing an open source project on GitHub, meaning that the code is available for people to look at and use or the project is open for people to look at and use, you don't have to pay for the service. But if it's a closed project, you do have to pay. That has generated a lot of open source projects on GitHub. Microsoft is known for being proprietary, right? They are known for uh, holding their patents close. They are known for not being interoperable with other folks. And uh, it's definitely an interesting combination. That said, Microsoft has made a number of concerted efforts to engage more with the open source community under the years under CEO Nadella. You know, they are now part of the Linux Foundation. They are apparently the largest contributor to GitHub. They have open sourced a number of their projects that are available for people to use. So, you know, this could be a change of heart for Microsoft, uh, but they certainly are going to have to earn the trust of the developers that might typically, especially if they're open source or free software enthusiasts, uh, going to see Microsoft as kind of uh, ultimate nemesis. So it was certainly a surprising uh, move for, for the companies to join for some. And it did cause many people who are on GitHub and who are you know, open source enthusiasts to to leave GitHub and 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 host their projects elsewhere. 
Yeah, I liked your piece on this, April, in Slate. It was called Microsoft Bought GitHub. Will GitHub's users trust it? And just for those who don't know, GitHub is spelled G-I-T-H-U-B. Um, that reminds me that Microsoft has really been quietly on this huge role for years in terms of how the company is doing under CEO Satya Nadella. It's been, its value has been growing astronomically ever since he took over from Steve Ballmer about four years ago. And it recently briefly passed Google in terms of market valuation. It, it, it topped Google uh, for the first time in many years. Uh, but let's talk about Google because Google recently pulled out of a contract with the Pentagon called Project Maven. And I think it was partly because of Google's own employees' concerns about the, the ties with the, uh, with the Defense Department. Is that right? It was. This is a story that has really been championed by Kate Kongner uh, with Gizmodo. She's done great reporting on this. And Google's employees did protest this uh, project. It was a project to provide artificial intelligence for drones. Speaking of Microsoft, that is a company that also has very large contracts with the Pentagon, not going under the same heat that Google is, uh, at least around the the work with Project Maven and, and, and providing kind of AI software for drones. Uh, but Diane Green, who heads up Google's cloud computing division, uh, made an announcement to employees that that was leaked to the press eventually that they are pulling out of this. And uh, the reason is because it, it looks bad and people are mad and and do not want Google to be in the business of war. So that was something that the company changed due to it appears to be employee and public pressure. So, uh, you know, definitely an interesting reaction from the company there. Yeah, I think it just underscores again how much power these Silicon Valley companies' own employees have within those companies. They they really have a lot of leverage. We've seen employee change uh, come from within at, at Facebook and at Google. It also made me think of the fact that Google, you know, they used to have that "Don't be evil" motto. They've they've pretty much ditched that by now. But there is still some difference in the corporate culture in Google. Still, maybe a little bit more of that utopian Silicon Valley ethos than you than you get up in Seattle at at Microsoft which long ago accommodated itself to, to working with uh, the government and, and on defense contracts. There's certainly a lot of people at Google that feel strongly about what Google should and shouldn't be doing, and they work there, and they are taking action to push the company in a direction that they feel is more ethically correct. Uh, a company that's even bigger than Google, though, that made headlines is Apple. Apple, we have to remember, uh, is more valuable than Alphabet. And they had a developer conference yesterday. So all the big names have news. Will, what's going on there? Yeah, a lot of news out of Apple's developer conference, as there is each year. Uh, this is WWDC. It's Apple's worldwide developer conference. And for the most part, it's, it's a, a conference that runs for several days where all the people who develop apps for the Apple App Store are invited to come and see what's new and what's coming down the line in terms of the software and the operating system. But in terms of news, the big day is the first day. It opens with a keynote. CEO Tim Cook is there. All the vice presidents are there. And the big thing that they're doing is they're showing people what is going to be coming up in the next version of iOS. So that's the, the operating system that runs your iPhone or iPad. And in the next version of Mac OS, uh, which is obviously the operating system for their desktop and laptop computers, that will be called Mojave. There were a ton of newsy items from here, uh, but one that I found most interesting was Apple's effort 
to combat smartphone addiction. It's, they're actually trying to build in some features to the new version of iPhone software that will help you put down your phone and, and keep it down for a while when you don't want it to be buzzing and, and when you don't want to have it in your hands all the time. Now, I think this is interesting because to me, it's very counterintuitive from Apple, or at least for Apple, to try to get us to use our phones less, right? They want us to use our phones a ton. They want us to use apps on our phones a ton, you know, particularly if they're iPhones, of course. Smartphone addiction has done a lot for the company. Can we really trust them to show us how to put it down? Well, that's a fair question, and, and it's it's important to note that they're responding to pressure here. There's been a big movement that's been uh, spearheaded by some tech critics within Silicon Valley, including people who used to work at some of these big tech companies, um, and it's a movement that makes the case that modern technology and smartphones and social networking are hijacking our minds, they're taking over our lives, they intrude on us to the point where we... You can't be in the present uh, where we don't enjoy or, or take notice of what's around us. So Apple's new features here uh, include a, a new app called Screen Time. You can open up this app and see how much you've been using each of your various apps on your iPhone. You can set limits. You can say, I only want to let myself use Instagram for... 30 minutes a day. That's enough Instagram for me. And then it'll give you a notification. If, you're, if you've been using it for 25 minutes on any given day, it'll let you know and say, hey, maybe time to do something else. Uh, this is also something similar to what Google announced at its developer conference earlier this year. So it's interesting to see both of these big smartphone platforms taking seriously this, this criticism that uh, people have grown too addicted to their devices and too addicted to uh, the internet. Now, what strikes me about this this screen time feature is that it's essentially kind of a way of people shaming themselves or, or looking at your phone and saying, oh, man, what a loser. I spent two hours today, you know, thumbing through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. I, what a waste of time. Shame is essentially the confrontation with something that you would rather not be confronted with. And so when we shame a company uh, it works because it's not about us necessarily. It's about someone else often or it's about, you know, another group that we want to shame and call attention to something that that is bad. But when it's about us, I feel like we often look away. Right. And so if I was told there's an app on your phone that says, April, you can see that you were on Twitter for three hours today. I would probably be like, oh, you know, F that. <laughs> Like, I know I have a problem. Thank you. <laughs> you know? So we'll see how it works. It's definitely a, an interesting uh, philosophy that they're trying to forward. I like that they're uh, trying to make their phones less harmful for people because phone addiction is real. But uh, we'll, we'll see if this kind of self-policing that they're trying to institute works. I, I'm, it's an interesting experiment for sure. Yeah, one thing to notice here is that they actually have linked together the self-policing mechanisms with the parental controls. So ah. that screen time is the app that both lets you control what your kids are doing on their phone and control what you what you yourself are doing on your phone. It's it's it, it makes sense to me in a way because uh, you know we we kind of we kind of lose the ability to make rational decisions when we're glued to our screen all the time. And so this is a way that you can kind of step back in maybe a, a more sane moment and say, hey, I'm going to try to set up some limits for myself. Now, whether that actually works, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I feel like if you're if you're glued to Clash of Clans or whatever you know whatever game people are playing for hours a day, <laughs> and you get this little pop up that's like, "Hey, you've been playing this for a while." Yeah, I feel like you might just brush right past that. Um, but there is there is one other element to this that I think is is yeah. worth pointing out, and that's a change to how notifications work. So one of the big reasons that it's so hard to stay off your phone 
is that even when you do succeed in putting it away and, and closing it up, putting it in your pocket, it's going to buzz again in five minutes unless you're really vigilant about which apps you allow to notify you about or stuff. Or if you have no friends and nobody <laughs> buzzes you. But like popular will gets buzzed every five minutes. No, but it's it's true that notifications are a problem. <laughs> yeah, p- popular will is not a nickname that I hear very often. But uh, but yeah, and, and so what they're doing now is um, now when you get a notification – Immediately from that screen, right from the lock screen where it reaches out and bugs you Mm -hmm. uh, to check Facebook or whatever, it will now, Apple will now give you the option to turn off future notifications from that app, or you can choose an option called deliver quietly. And then those notifications will pile up in your notification screen, but they won't buzz you when you have your phone closed and locked and put away. To me, what that does is it actually changes the incentives for the app makers. So if you make an app, up until now, you've been able to just reach out and, and bother someone anytime you want with a push alert or a push notification. Well, now, every time you do that, you're incurring the risk that they will say, you know what? I don't really want that app to bug me anymore. I'm going to turn off notifications from that app. I think it changes the playing field a bit, and it, it should be a win for people who who want to strike a more rational relationship with their phones. But question. I I can turn notifications off on any apps I want now. I don't see what's different. I turn, I, I toggle my notification settings all the time. Uh, this seems like just another wrapping paper over something they already offer. Yeah, I mean, you can make the case that this is all pretty superficial. I mean, the, the movement uh, against spending too much time on your smartphone suggests some more radical remedies that would actually hurt Apple. Like maybe you go back to a dumb phone um, or maybe you turn your screen gray so the phone uh, it just feels less, less engaging. engaging yeah. Right. So Apple, I, I definitely think it's true that Apple is trying to to introduce some measures that would keep people using and loving their iPhones a lot, but but make them feel like they have more control. That said, there, I mean, there is a real difference, I think, between having to go into your settings and, and navigate through a bunch of different options and do a bunch of manual, uh, you know, turning this on and this off versus just having that ability to, to on a whim, say, you know what? I'm not going to get uh, notifications from this app anymore. Right. And so, you know, Apple really has long positioned itself as a company that takes user privacy very, very, very seriously. It had that public spar with the FBI over whether or not it was going to allow law enforcement to uh, to, to access the cell phone of uh, one of the people involved in the San Bernardino uh, killings a couple years ago. I think that was actually three years ago now in 2015. The thing is, though, that that right before Apple's developer conference on Monday, there was a news story in The New York Times about how Facebook had been sharing user data with hardware developers and and folks like like Apple, right, with hardware makers and device makers. And, you know, I think that goes to show that like Apple also collects data on like the App Store usage and probably all kinds of stuff about your phone. I mean, we don't actually know what Apple was doing with this Facebook data. We also know that this was reported that it was happening years ago. This wasn't necessarily like a news story. It had been talked about before that that Facebook had this relationship with hardware developers. Uh, still, it does call into questions, especially post-Cambridge Analytica, why is all this data going to all these different people and what are they doing with it? Great, Apple is always had a reputation that has been strong on privacy, uh, I want to know what they're doing with my Facebook data. 
Yeah, that is an interesting story. The New York Times really seemed to think it had this huge uh, damning scoop on the fact that Facebook had been giving all the device makers, this was back 2012, 2013, before, in many cases, before Facebook even had apps on people's phones, um, they were letting the software makers, Apple and BlackBerry and, and Android, have direct access to people's Facebook data. But Facebook didn't think it was a story. I mean, they, they kind of pushed back and said, look, this is just how... This is how stuff worked back then. We're working with trusted device makers. These are companies you're already trusting with all kinds of data if you bought their smartphone, and they have not seen any abuses, they claim, in terms of that data being misused by the likes of, of BlackBerry or Apple or, or Samsung or whoever else. Now, I disagree with Facebook. It's totally a story if user data is going in a place that users didn't know it was going. And more reporting, the better, right? People should know how they interact with these companies and what these companies are doing with their stuff. It's just that this was kind of public knowledge in a way or it's something that Facebook wasn't necessarily hiding at the time. But again, with the wrapping of Cambridge Analytica, with the public uh, knowledge of this stuff now, it's it's being brought up again and it, and it should be and it should be discussed. So I'm happy they did it uh, or that the story came out. And, and no surprise that Facebook is pushing back. Right. And of course, that wasn't all that Apple talked about at WWDC. We have some other great stories from our Slate colleagues. Uh, you can read Christina Bonington on Siri shortcuts, which is a new way to use Siri. Amy Pollard had a good post on Memoji, which is a new uh, animated emoji from Apple that's sort of their answer to Bitmoji. Uh, so go ahead and check that stuff out as well. But first, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have April's interview with author and activist Naomi Klein. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Naomi Klein, the renowned journalist, author, and activist who has a new book out this week, The Battle for Paradise. It's about how entrepreneurs, politicians, and particularly cryptocurrency enthusiasts have swooped in after the devastation wrought to the island from Hurricane Maria to take advantage of the territory's mountains of debt and near tax haven status. They're pushing for privatization of the country's electricity system and schools and to essentially create a libertarian enclave relatively free of government regulation that some are already calling crypto land. These new settlers to Puerto Rico, however, are offset by a growing grassroots movement on the island to switch to solar energy, local farming, and to save the public school system, as Klein details eloquently in her new book. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us. Really glad to be with you. 
So you've written about this phenomenon that you call disaster capitalism, which you wrote about in your 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine, wherein after a crisis, private contractors move in, suck up funding for rebuilding efforts, which often results in shoddy work and infrastructure that more often than not doesn't serve the needs of the people who live in these places. And it also encourages a kind of austerity and privatization that justifies cutting billions from government budgets. That appears to be happening in Puerto Rico. But first, could you tell us what brought you to Puerto Rico after Maria and what groups you met and worked with when you arrived? So I published this book, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, more than a decade ago. It came out in 2007. Almost instantly um, after the book came out, I started to hear from Puerto Ricans, uh, particularly Puerto Rican academics at University of Puerto Rico, Uh, about how the book was really missing a chapter, um, that I should have had a chapter in the Shock Doctrine about Puerto Rico, because the Shock Doctrine um, is a book about how disasters have been systematically harnessed to uh, push through policies that benefit a small corporate elite um, in country after country, and and using the state of emergency and 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 panic and the fact that people are just focused on staying alive after a huge natural disaster or after a war or in the midst of a devastating economic crisis and so people are in this state of shock this state of distraction and so it's easier to push through policies that people oppose that people understand are not going to be in their interests so hurricane katrina is a kind of classic example of this because the city was under evacuation when uh when new Orleans school system was completely remade and reinvented and it became the most privatized school system in the United States with a with the highest number of, of charters per capita. Um, so it, in Puerto Rico, this was happening already uh, using the economic crisis that got so much worse in 2006 to push through a radical austerity agenda. And so the the groups, that that's really what brought me to Puerto Rico, um, because after Maria, I you know, started hearing from Puerto Ricans again, you know, it's getting even worse. So Puerto Rico is a, a, a quite a kind of unique example of what I call the shock doctrine, because you have a sort of shock after shock doctrine right. where um, it was uh, this these, this mechanism was already very much in play using Puerto Rico's debt crisis before Maria hit. And this had been going on for well over a decade of exploiting the debt crisis to push a plan to privatize the island's infrastructure, to radically downsize its public education system and privatize it. Huge layoffs in the public sector, huge deregulation big giveaways to corporations and the ultra-rich to encourage them to come relocate to Puerto Rico. Um, And then Maria hits, and the whole thing goes into hyperdrive. I mean, the fact is, Maria hadn't even made landfall before you started to see speculation in the business press that this was going to be the opportunity to privatize the electricity system. Right. And so when you came to Puerto Rico, you actually met with activists that were trying to build a different future. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the groups that you met there? Well, I met you know, a, a great many people, including um, coalitions of economists and lawyers who have been working very hard to question the legality and legitimacy of Puerto Rico's debt, right? Because all of this 
is premised on the idea that Puerto Rico spent beyond its means, got itself in this mess, and has to swallow the bitter medicine, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look closely at how Puerto Rico's debt was accumulated and how it increased exponentially, a lot of it, if you do look closely and do audit the debt, may very well be illegal um, and violate Puerto Rico's constitution because um, it invested so heavily in these um, really dodgy, questionable mechanisms. Um, so I met with those lawyers, and there are a few um, uh, lawsuits that are in play questioning the, uh, the, the what in Puerto Rico is called the Junta, which is the fiscal control board that was created by Congress, the so-called PROMESA law. I'm questioning whether or not this idea that you can have an island that supposedly has the right to elect its representatives, at least locally, they can't vote for the U.S. president, but they can elect their governor, they can elect their mayors. But, um, but ever since the PROMESA law was passed by Congress, there has been this body that is like a, it's like an emergency management board, like you have in, in uh, Detroit and Flint, Michigan, which can override the local, the local government. And so there's an argument that this is illegal, that violate, that it violates the constitution of the United States and the right of people to elect their representatives and to, you know, to, to, to be governed that way. So I met with some of those people. I also met with, um, groups that have been fighting for a long time for a different kind of food system in Puerto Rico and pointing out the sort of absurdity that you have this tremendously fertile island that imports around 90% of its food from the United States. Puerto right. Rico is a colony of the United States and was built its whole economy was built to be dependent on the United States, to be a captive market for us food manufacturers. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, there's, a um, a wonderful uh, farming activist in in Puerto Rico named Dalma Cartagena, who I quote in the book. And you know, recently she she said, um, "Puerto Rico hit us very hard, but it also strengthened our convictions." And I think that really sums up a lot of what I saw in Puerto Rico, where where there was a very strong analysis before the storm hit of what was wrong with Puerto Rico's economy in this system of extreme dependence on imports and this extreme sort of centralization at the ports, at this fo at the fossil fuel uh, generation facilities, um, the electrical power facilities. Uh, and, and they had plans for to replace it with a much more decentralized Puerto Rican owned and controlled system, whether with renewable energy or with agroecological food systems, um, where the food is grown in Puerto Rico and, and is um, providing food for the local communities surrounding the farms. Those plans and those sort of small scale experiments were in place before Maria hit. Then Maria hits and basically they're going, we told you so, we tried to warn you. And now we really need to have the change that we had been fighting for before the storm. But they are in this pitched battle with, you know, the folks I call the disaster capitalists who have their own vision for the island. And it is this, you know, what's what the Puerto Rican uh, governor's office calls the visitor's economy, this idea that Puerto Rico should be rebuilt to the benefit of high net worth individuals who can be lured to the island with this buffet of tax cuts and giveaways and tax holidays um, and convinced to relocate their residences and their businesses um, to the island uh, and that there'll be some kind of trickle down that will benefit the rest of Puerto Ricans, even though they're barely paying any tax. 
Right. And you describe how shortly after the storm, those who did use solar were back up and running, whereas uh, so much of the island was was dark for, for so long. And people, of course, had medical needs, uh, needed oxygen machines and things like that. And we know the cost of this now, right? Because we have this um, this Harvard study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently, um, which puts uh, the number of dead um, after Hurricane Maria uh, at close to 5,000. And that was as of the end of December, right? So right. six months ago. So, you know, the, and they noted in the study that the number was still high when they stopped um, collecting their data. Um, and what they say in the study is that the, that the largest cause of death was um, due to lack of medical care. Uh, and that is intimately tied to the loss of electricity, uh, the collapse of the electricity system, and the collapse of the water system, which is tied right. to the fact that um, the they didn't have power for the water facilities. Now, against the backdrop of some of the activists that you met, there is, as you mentioned, another group of people coming to Puerto Rico who are, who are already there, cryptocurrency enthusiasts who want to actually buy a piece of land on the island and create a new kind of crypto colony. Some are calling it a crypto island. Others are calling it Seoul, you say. They're attracted to the island's tax haven status or near tax haven status. As you note in your book, uh, U.S. citizens who move to Puerto Rico can avoid paying federal income tax on any income earned on Puerto Rico, zero capital gains tax. The list goes on. And the governor of Puerto Rico has been supportive, making the case at a conference in February that Puerto Rico should be seen as a blank canvas for entrepreneurs who want to capitalize on the area's relative lack of regulation. How likely do you think this kind of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency uh, oasis is likely to come to fruition in your view? Does it seem like they have a chance at kind of building their libertarian paradise? You know, it's really hard to know. Um, Anybody who spent time with the cryptocurrency crowd knows there is a really, really high level of fast talking bullshit. Um, so I, I really can't say whether they are going to do what they're talking about, which is kind of build their own city that is entirely built on blockchain um, technology and that you would need like a passport and things like this. I mean, we're hearing a lot. Um, And it may simply be a kind of, you know, philanthro cover for the fact that people are really just moving there because they can get a mansion on the cheap in a kind of gated resort community. Um, and they, because of these, these, uh, you know, extraordinary lax tax laws, um, they would be able potentially to convert their crypto cash into hard U.S. currency and not pay, um, capital gains. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that's the real reason why they're there. Whether they would build their, you know, libertarian fantasy land. Um, you know, I, ha- I have no idea. I have no way of, uh, of knowing, uh, you know, what is, what is fantasy talk and what is real at this point. But they are looking for large pieces of land. And they do seem to have support from the government that uh, that wants to see entrepreneurs come in like them and 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 build businesses, you know, even blockchain businesses like they're focusing on. Right. Um, I mean, they're they, they and this is. I mean, the the extraordinary thing about this is that is that. Puerto Rico had a policy in the 40s and 50s and 60s to attract U.S. um, companies to the island to build factories, right? And these were tax incentives that were tied to the creation of thousands and thousands of jobs. 
what's extraordinary about these these laws is that they're not required to create any any jobs at all. I mean, they don't need to do anything but hire a gardener to um, to, to benefit from these tax incentives. And then we had folks like Elon Musk come in after the storm saying he was going to ship Tesla batteries in. Google said they're going to fly their Project Loon balloons uh, to provide Internet over the island. Um, And then just last week, I reported on the FCC announcing they're going to give $900 million to companies to to build Internet infrastructure uh, throughout Puerto Rico. Found out that that was a very inflated number. And most Mm -hmm. of that money is coming from a fund uh, from the FCC that's actually designated specifically to uh, provide subsidized phone service and internet service for people who are 135% below the poverty line. So they're draining a fund for people who are well below the poverty line to get a subsidized phone service uh, to, to, to kind of rebuild Puerto Rico. Uh, but it seems like a lot of that infrastructure they're putting in is actually not going to be necessarily affordable in any way for people that live on the island. Particularly, you know, outside of urban centers. Um, You know, I think that in order to service the um, high net worth individuals that they're attracting, they'll make sure that they have reliable private power, um, you know, in in urban areas and in wealthy enclaves. But the real concern is whether there's going to be any electricity at all in some of the more remote parts of the archipelago. Right. And what are your thoughts then on, on these kind of private companies or, you know, even folks like Elon Musk or, or Google coming in and saying that they're going to swoop in with, with some of their solutions? Well, look, I mean, Tesla provided batteries for a children's hospital, solar panels and batteries for a children's hospital. I mean, who is going to to argue with that? That's, you know, that's, that's hugely important. Um, but I also think there's been a lot of talk and not enough of follow up and a sort of almost using Puerto Rico as a, um, you know, as an advertising platform for some of these companies. And, um, you know, in terms of the follow through that people so desperately need, there has not been nearly enough. And what I found in my reporting on the island is that people want power, not just electricity, they also want political power. Um, they want to have a say in, in, in how their electricity is generated. And they're worried about this sort of green energy becoming a cover for privatization. Um, you know, I'm, I met somebody when I was in Puerto Rico, a trade union leader, who talked about how he was worried that Puerto Rico was going to have a lot of green energy and no power. <laughs> Um, no political power. And, you know, this fits in with a colonial relationship with the United States. I mean, Puerto Rico is often referred to as the world's oldest colony. Uh, and that's true that they have been a colony since Puerto Rico was handed over from Spain to the United States. Um, so what people are fighting for in Puerto Rico is real sovereignty, you know, energy sovereignty, food sovereignty, and yes, political sovereignty as well. How can people who are in the U.S. on the mainland who are watching this happen, how can they help? What can they do? Um, well, this book that I just put out um, is a, a 100% a fundraiser for uh, the most exciting political uh, um, phenomenon happening in Puerto Rico, in my opinion, which is the emergence of a coalition called Junta Gente. It's a coalition of 60 organizations that are tr- putting forward a what they're calling a people's platform for how the island should be rebuilt 
in the interests of Puerto Ricans, not in the interests of foreign investors. And they've been having meetings all over the archipelago to get real input from communities that were very, very hard hit um, by Maria and saying, what do you want? What kind of electricity do you want? What do you want your food system to look like? How do we prepare for the next shock? And so this is a coalition that includes economists, lawyers, grassroots, farmers, um, people who were involved in these extraordinary mutual support networks um, that got food to communities when FEMA failed. Um, and so they, they've come together in this remarkable way to put forward um, uh, their vision. And I would really encourage people to support Junta Gente, to go to juntagente.org, make a donation. Um, any proceeds from my book will go directly to them. The whole advance goes to them. I'm not taking a cent. Um, and I really believe that because the um, economic balance is so completely out of whack in terms of the people who have their sort of fantasy libertarian idea of what the island should be, have such deep pockets in order to, um, you know, to, to, to make their dream a reality, that it's really important to fund the grassroots in this moment so that they can, you know, uh, put, put, you know, put another vision for Puerto Rico forward. Naomi Klein, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. All right, stay with us. We just have one more break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Welcome back to the show. Instead of a tab this week, I want to share one of the emails that we got from a listener. We've been asking you all to write in with questions or comments. A listener in California said that she's been getting text messages on her iPhone from political campaigns. They've been addressing her by name in some cases, encouraging her to go out and vote for a particular candidate in statewide races. Uh, she asks, how are these campaigns getting my cell phone number and name? Is someone selling them the information? And then she adds, in retaliation, I will not be voting for any candidate who texts or calls me on my cell. Max, when, I, when you saw this email, that rang a bell for you, right? This is our producer, Max Jacobs. Hey, guys. Yes, um, I believe I got three political messages over the weekend. I'm also in California, two for lieutenant governor urging, urging me to vote um, for different candidates. I admire the, the spirit of this letter. I'm not sure, um, since I actually know I will be voting for one of the people texting me, I don't know if I can quite draw the line in the sand there. 
Yeah, and I had a I had a quick reservation. I'm not an expert in this. I had a quick reservation on the idea of of automatically boycotting a candidate who you get a text message from, and that is you know, it's possible that these text messages in some cases may not be authentic. Um, I've read at least one news report from elsewhere in the country where a campaign was disavowing some text messages that had been sent in that campaign's name. So I don't know if you can be 100% certain that the candidate has actually approved the message, so to speak. April, have you run into this at all? Yeah, I mean, I know if I got a text from candidates, I have not been getting texts from candidates. It's probably because I hold on to my 615 Nashville area code with all of me. Uh, but I do live in the Bay Area and um, I haven't been getting texts. But I know that if I did, I would be so annoyed. And when I do get texts from candidates or campaigns that I especially when I didn't ask for them, it's like a total invasion of my personal space. My phone is with me all the time. And they're just like getting in your face with this. I mean, it's one thing to see a sign and a billboard or hear an ad on the radio and not be able to kind of turn away from those because they're everywhere you look. But it's another thing to have it like on your phone. And my phone is surgically attached to my left hand all the time. Like, you know, I, I, I feel like it's a, it's, it's an invasion of personal space. And I would also be very turned off if that happened. I, I really empathize with the listener there. Yeah. Agree. This is completely invasive and should be out of bounds. I did a little research on this. There was actually a Slate story back in 2012 by Sasha Eisenberg, who writes about technology in political campaigns. There was a battle even back then about whether campaigns should be allowed to do this. He wrote about how they get your information. Um, one of the one of the ways is that they, uh, you know, information from voter rolls can be bought right. and sold. There are all sorts of ways for people to buy information from you online. And if you Google around, actually, if you just Google political text messages, you will actually find some firms, some consulting firms that are offering to do this for candidates. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it seems to me like it should backfire, but uh, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Producer jumping in here again quickly to just thank the listener for writing and telling us their thoughts. And uh, yes, thank you. A further shout out if anyone else is receiving similar text messages. For that matter, if getting a text with your first name actually is something that caught your eye as opposed to, I think our reaction is, this is kind of creepy. You know, be curious to hear about that too. Okay. And now Adam, our engineer has just jumped in to say that he too is getting these text messages. In fact, he got one that was addressed to his wife, but it was on his phone from one of the San Francisco mayoral candidates. So I love how this letter has united our our whole uh, cross country studio apparatus in annoyance at political text messages. But April, uh, why don't you tell us what your tab was this week? Yeah, I mean, mine is somewhat related to that. It does have to do with politics season. I mean, today are the primaries in California, the most populated state in the country. And uh, there is a standoff happening right now, at least with the mayoral race in San Francisco, uh, which is a race that typically tech entrepreneurs have been very, very involved in. And it's a very contentious race this year uh, after uh, Mayor Ed Lee passed away. Sadly, uh, his predecessor, London Breed, stepped in. She was then pushed out because she's going to be running for election and they didn't want her to have an unfair advantage. Uh, It's a hotly debated race. And typically we see... uh the entrepreneurs kind of put their hand on the scale. You know, Marissa Mayer did commercial for <laughs> for for Mayor Lee back in the day. Uh, Benioff backed her. Now, you know, Mark Benioff is saying he's not picking a candidate. Sam Altman saying he's not picking a candidate. Uh, we're we're seeing um, 
tech leaders kind of back away from this election uh, more than they used to. They used to be very engaged in in local San Francisco politics. So uh, there was an article in The New York Times about this. Sorry, just to (laughs) jump back into that. It's called Tech Was Supposed to Get Political. It's hanging back in this election. And uh, and it's it's about this kind of relative silence um, from these industry leaders in the place that they call home where where they used to, to really put their finger on the scale. Yeah, one of the reactions that I saw to that story was um, a sort of slightly bitter reaction from something someone who I'm guessing is kind of a, a center left technologist. They're saying, "Well, you know, what do you expect? That the tech magnets are back, backing off from the so-called resistance because the resistance doesn't want them. I mean, progressives on the left are anti-tech, and so they have they've alienated this potential uh, uh, animating force in liberal politics. What do you what do you think of that?" I mean, I don't know what the resistance wants or doesn't want, but I will say that, you know, to have uh, tech leaders like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg back a progressive candidate isn't necessarily going to look good for those candidates that maybe want to look like they're going to be strong on these superpowers that are having a large effect on the city. So if a, if a politician is hoping to look progressive, um, they might not want to align themselves with these tech candidates that used to, you know, be buddy-buddy with the Obama administration and be really, really close with these kinds of more progressive candidates publicly. Uh, they have had a bad year and um, the candidates might want to distance themselves from that. And it makes sense in a way. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us, as our kind listener from California did this week, at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Naomi Klein. You can follow her on Twitter at Naomi A. Klein. And if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes, we'd be forever grateful. It really helps to boost our show and let more listeners find out about us. Uh, it's it's sort of crucial to our show's, uh, our show's uh, success and future. So thanks so much when you do that. Nah, we don't need your haters. <laughs> no, but if you love us, do let us know. Uh, if Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks to Shasha Leonard at Slate in Brooklyn. We will see y'all next week.